Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace. The Work Walk, bringing you episodes from management, leadership, and employment, all in the workplace. It's varied. It's informative. It's interesting. We try and make it that way because we know that's why you listen here to all the shows that come from Paul McLaughlin. They come from the expertise that is resident in the people that we interview or chat with in a style that we think is conducive to learning more about the subject and the person. Today, case in point from two of our friends at Booze and Company, two books, four authors, and we're going to be speaking to two of the four authors. The first book is Energy Shift, Game-Changing Options for Fueling the Future, written by Eric Spiegel and Neil MacArthur, both of Booze and Company. We're going to be speaking with Eric, and the book will help anyone understand the major forces that are shaping the future of energy and the choices that businesses must face. And they're not always attractive options. Lesser of two evils sometimes plays a role, but I think you'll find the discussion with Eric particularly enlightening because he walks the corridors of power in Washington and sometimes energy policy surprise is dictated by politics and regional differences. He's got a good view on it. You'll find him to be a, uh, a challenging uh, interview, and one you'll enjoy listening to. Second is a little bit different. It's a book about marketing, specifically the four pillars of profit-driven marketing. Speaking there with one of the two authors, Leslie Moeller, his colleague Edward Landry is the second of uh, uh, author. We're going to be speaking with Leslie and with Les, and you're going to get a better sense of what are the traditional pillars of marketing. And then he adds that fifth, which is profit-driven. And in this day and age, you can do a lot of things, but to do it for a profit is a challenging exercise. That's what we do here. We introduce you to challenging exercises because the economy is challenging, the times we live in is challenging, and what better way to hear about them than from the experts being able to go on a bit, a bit at length about how to solve, in the first part, energy. Part two, profit-driven marketing. All here, McLaughlin at work. And off to work we go. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace, the work walk, speaking with Eric Spiegel, the book, the interest, his expertise, energy. The book is Energy Shift, Game-Changing Options for Fueling the Future. The imprint is McGraw-Hill. The book is part of a series on the future of business from Booze and Company. Booze and Company, the former Booze Allen. Booze and Company is the entity for whom Eric Spiegel works as a senior partner in Booze and Company's McLean's, McLean, Virginia's office. He leads the firm's work in global energy, chemical, and utility clients. And Eric and his co-author, Neil MacArthur, have written a, uh, as they say, the game-changing options, and they those game-changing options are not without some cost, both in terms of money and uh, the, the and social impact. 
Eric, um, long-ranging discussion, but thank you for joining me today here on McLaughlin at Work to discuss sort of some of the, the high, this behind the scenes, behind the obvious solutions, and uh, we want to get right into the options for fueling the future. What is Energy Shift uh, all about? Well, Paul, uh, uh, as you said, I've been I've been working in uh, consulting in, in energy for for about 25 years, and, and over the past few years, there's been a lot of conversation about about climate change and the need to reduce our greenhouse gases. Uh, also, a lot of a lot of talk around the high energy prices, what's happened to, to oil prices in the last few years, and, and the volatility, the up and down swings, and also the increasing demand for energy. But but people often talk about those things separately. And, uh, you know, what I thought was needed was someone to bring together all three of those pieces and talk about what needed to happen over the next 25 or 30 years so that those don't become uh, game-changing issues for us. And, uh, and so the book is really about an energy shift that needs to take place. Today it's going very slowly, but there's two major pieces to the energy shift. One is, one is the shift from the internal combustion engine which is the mainstay of our transportation industry around the world, uh, cars, trucks, uh, buses, et cetera, and, uh, and also the shift from carbon uh, electricity production, uh, mainly from things like coal and natural gas and, and some oil, to non-carbon-related uh, uh, energy production, which would be things like wind, solar, nuclear, uh, Etc. So that that's really, if you think about the climate change and rising energy prices and where the world's headed, and also issues around energy security, those are the, the two big the two big shifts that need to occur. And on current course, they're moving much slower than scientists tell us we need to move to uh, to not run into trouble with with climate change. Now, um, the the interesting element of speaking frankly with somebody like yourself is that. You are an economic engine for Booz and Company. You work for corporate America and co global corporations. Uh, your book is not an academic treatise on this and presumably takes, I say presumably, my word, takes into account the impact on corporate profits and the like. As you and I were speaking yesterday, uh, some of the energy requirements seem to butt up directly against the uh, some economic realities could could you put that in perspective as both a businessman a consultant and somebody who has written a book on uh, game-changing options how did you go about that and keep booze and company in business <laughs> that's a good that's a good point well I, I think you know I think the reality of, of why the energy shift is moving along so slowly is because you know one of the major issues is because of the economics I think there's a lot of major uh, energy companies around the globe. The major oil companies that I work for, the major power companies, the major technology companies that would like to do more and move faster, but but frankly, um, there's too much uncertainty out there right now. There's uncertainty around what's going to happen with regulation around climate change. So uh, there's lots of talk about um, putting a a cost of on CO2 things like cap-and-trade programs or, or carbon taxes, et cetera. Um, there's also a lot of uncertainty around what's going to happen with, uh, with fuels globally in terms of the price of oil, the price of natural gas, the price of coal, et cetera. And there's also a lot of uncertainty around 
uh, technology and how fast it'll advance. And most of these things are going to require a collaboration between between the, the kinds of major companies that I work for and governments to make that happen. And and thus far, that's moved very slowly. Uh, I think the the big one out there for people is really getting to a point where we know what what the price of carbon is going to be. Until we do that, you're not going to see the kinds of investment that's really made needed to make this energy shift. So when when we typically work with major oil companies or major power companies, yes, they would like to build um, you know more renewable projects. They'd like to build more nuclear plants. They'd like to they'd like to build more electric cars than than uh, than the internal combustion engine. But but frankly, until they understand what that future market's going to look like, they can't make those kind of big investments for for their shareholders. It just wouldn't be. You know, it just wouldn't be um, seen as, um, as as the right kind of investments at this point in time. So, so that's why you see this shift taking place at a snail's pace, really. And and even the stimulus bill that's coming out with, with, in the U.S. with Obama and some in other countries isn't really going to speed that up much until we get to a resolution around uh, some of those issues. Uh, a series of good points, well made. Obviously. Uh, a couple of things on a, on a, I'll say, a global, cosmic, uh, big picture. Uh, here we are in this, the, 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 entering the summer of our discontent, the spring of the depression, um, and we are also witnessing this thing called uh, swine flu. I don't exactly understand it. Don't exactly understand the impact. Although I was stunned to see that uh, what they attributed to swine flu wiped out close to a half a million people after World War One and 50,000 in the U.S., which is a factor that I was, I was unfamiliar with. The point being, though, are we ever going to get to exercising these game-changing options unless we are faced with a crisis? That's, that's number one. And number two, in your opinion, what fo what form would that crisis take that would give people globally uh, in this small planet the energy, the moxie to move? Yeah, I I think uh, actually we've we've done some of those scenarios for major clients around what what kinds of major crises and uh, you know one one that comes to mind very quickly is um, if if suddenly. Uh, things like oil imports were shut off um, from the Middle East. If you had more turmoil and, and uh, more war and those kinds of things, if, if that was shut off, you could quickly see energy prices, uh, forget $4 at the pump, you could quickly see 10 or $15 at the pump, um, which would make uh, transportation as we know it today, um, you know, almost un infeasible for most for most individuals and most most companies, most kinds of transportation, air travel would become prohibitive. Um, driving to work would become prohibitive. It, it would really change the, our way of life pretty quickly. And I think if they stayed at those kinds of levels, you would see a much more rapid, uh, much more rapid kinds of shift. And so, uh, many you know, for for many companies, we've played around with with those kinds of scenarios. Or if if you had a major incident in uh, in the U.S., uh, around one of the ports, with with some kind of uh, uh, you know uh, uh, some kind of a bomb, or some kind of a virus bomb, those kinds of things, or where you saw something happen with the energy grid, um, which a lot of people are concerned about. 
um, you would see a dramatic increase in the price, just like we've seen in you know air travel with security and things. You could see the same kinds of things with the import of energy or the transportation or movement of energy around the country. And so while there's a lot of talk about upgrading the grid, you know the government's also spending a lot of time and private companies is taking a look at securing the grid and securing our energy infrastructure. But but those are two kinds of things that could dramatically increase energy prices well beyond what we saw in the last few years with a run up to four dollars, four dollars a gallon uh, at the pump and 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 gas at ten dollars an MCF. Um, those as, yeah. as I hear you speak here, I'm, I'm thinking maybe 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 Eric Spiegel, uh, with whom I'm speaking author of the energy shift game-changing options for fueling the future maybe you've been watching too much 24 on monday nights <laughs> but let, let me ask you this again on a follow-up again uh, uh, two-pronged one prong says uh... the run-up to four dollars um, uh, coming up onto the anniversary uh... completely misunderstood by the american public and by yours truly as to how that ever happened it seemed to have gone away as quickly as it did and it wasn't real um, putting on your, wearing your global hat and going out on a limb, when you talk to your, your clients, what are the probabilities that, uh, that you attach to, um, and I'll call it $12 a, a gallon for the sake of argument, what are the probabilities of that happening? Given the fact that oil is, is from a variety of sources, and it seems like if uh, the economic bubble or the terrorist bubble or the strife bubble seems to you press it in one side in the Middle East, it comes out differently in Venezuela. Who knows what happens over in China? Um, what are the probabilities? I think I, I think in the near term, in the next five years or so, the probabilities that would that would get up to those kinds of prices is is fairly low. On the other hand, I think the probability that we'll get back up to where we were you know, uh, a year or so ago are, are actually fairly moderate. I mean, I, I think those, those things are, are very probable in the next four to five years. And I think, I think it's because of a couple things. You know, one is there's, there's some myths out there that people hear, um, that when you really dig into the analysis, uh, aren't true. One of them, um, that's a little bit contrarian is, uh, you, you've heard a lot about people talking about peak oil and the fact that the world is running out of oil. Well, in, in fact, that's not really true. The world isn't running out of oil. There's plenty of oil out there. The problem is that most of the most of the conventional oil that we 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 know about and has been developed around the world over the last you know 70, 80 years is running out in non-OPEC countries. So the U.S., for example, is now on a depletion curve. Europe, most of Europe, where where oil in the North Sea and other places is on a depletion curve. And, and where most of the oil that is left is in the Middle East. Uh, okay. And could you just explain what a depletion curve looks like, and and how steep is it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like an Elliott wave curve. Or yeah, well, you know, the U.S. I think at its peak used to used to produce, uh, you know, 12 million barrels of oil a day, and I think now we're down to 9 million barrels a day, and and probably over the next uh, 10 years we'll be down to five or six million barrels a day. Uh, and so, and we use over 20 million barrels a day. So, if you if you go back just about uh, 10 or 12 years ago, uh, 14 years ago, uh, we produced almost as much as we used, pretty close, plus or minus. Uh, but now we're a huge net importer of oil in this country, and and the same is true in Western Europe and the other developed countries, uh, and as well as China. And so, what what happened in the, in the last few years is with the economic bubble. 
the run up in housing prices and and uh the stock market and everything else the demand for energy grew very very rapidly i think that another myth around that is that it was all driven by china uh, that's just not true and actually if you take a look over the last 10 years the increase in oil demand in the US was was actually equal to or a little bit more than than the increase in China so we don't have to look any fo- any further than our own backyard to see that <laughs> to see what's driving up oil prices i mean we've been driving up demand at a very very rapid rate in this country um and these non-OPEC countries the 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 western countries are running out of our and the oil is depleting in those areas so what's happening is most of the oil is left in places that you know, in the Middle East and things where some of these countries aren't friendly, some of these countries have a lot of political strife going on, um, and those countries are also trying to maximize, you know, their income from the only asset that they have. So naturally, the prices go up. And I think what'll ha- if we if we don't take some steps with the price of oil dropping back to two dollars, the natural inclination of most people is to go back to doing the things they did before. I mean, you you see, for example, the uh, the sales of hybrids dropping off pretty quickly. Priuses backing up on car lots. You see a lot of people going out and starting to buy, uh, starting to put bigger cars back on the road and things. And I think when we come out of this economic depression, if prices stay down, you'll see more and more of that. And what will happen is demand will go up again, and supply is constrained. And so what you'll see is prices head back up again. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen in the next year. But but uh, I think there's a 50-50 chance you could see prices of four dollars a gallon again in in three or four years. Let's uh, let's address some of the practical issues, game-changing options for fueling the future. I'm reminded of two things when I when I read that on the cover of uh, your book. Uh, here, Eric Spiegel speaking with Paul McLaughlin. McLaughlin at work, your audio guide to the workplace, bringing you a variety of issues around management, leadership, and employment and certainly our good friends at Booz and Company and Strategy and Business, their quarterly publication, are very much part of that dialogue. Um, the two points, one is we had Fred Krupp, the president of Environmental Defense Fund, Miriam Horn, on their book, Earth, the Sequel, and uh, they were on Discovery Channel. I had a very interesting hour-long conversation uh, on Discovery Channel. And then here, McLaughlin at work with Miriam Horn, their book, uh, The Race to Reinvent Energy and Stop Global Warming, uh, Eric Spiegel and Neil MacArthur's book, uh, Energy Shift, Game-Changing Options for Fueling the Future, uh, both uh, s- address how we're going to uh, provide the energy, where the sources are going to come from, and I guess it's the sources of uses questions on both sides. Are there... When you call them game-changing options, could what what's got to go and what's got to come in? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think there's. Let's talk about let's talk about the two major shifts and then what needs to go and come in each one of those. I think uh, the biggest shift that needs to take place is the shift away from from uh, carbon-based uh, electric power generation to to a cleaner cleaner fuel. So the biggest issue is that. About half of the energy production, the uh, electricity production in the U.S. is generated with coal. Another 15 or 20 percent with with gas and oil. So, the majority of what we burn today to produce power in this country is made from fossil fuels, which emit 
uh, greenhouse gases, and, and um, most problematic is the CO2. Um, so we've got to find a way to not only build more coal plants, we've got to find a way eventually to close down many of those coal plants and replace them with something else. Well, These let, are, let, me, let me just yeah. interrupt you um, yeah. to, to, to ask the following with yeah. regard to uh, global warming. In your opinion, is global warming the issue that it is made out to be by many, but refuted by some? I, I don't want I don't want a long answer, but is, yeah. is, is, do we got a real problem there, or is it of your I, opinion that we do not? I think we absolutely have a real problem. I think uh, you know the vast majority of of the, the scientists who have spent time looking at this uh, inside and outside of uh, the U.S. now agree. Um, uh, I think the number of people who disagree is becoming smaller and smaller, and I think you know this this kind of reminds me of the tobacco issue and and uh, acid rain and just you know lots of lots of issues that were much smaller in terms of consequences. But I think we're going to look back on this in fifty years and say, you know I can't believe we were debating this. So okay, uh, fair, fair enough. Uh, thank right. you very much. Yeah. All right. um, coal. yeah, so coal. so we, we, these are big plants. They produce most of the power in this country. And, you know, we need to be looking at real options that we can put in to to replace these coal plants pretty quickly and not have to build any new ones. And, you know, some of it could be taken up by, you know, one of the, one of the other myths you hear out there a lot is this can all be done with renewables, with wind and solar and tidal power and all these other things people are talking about. But the reality is we can do about as much of that as we can do over the next 15 or 20 years. It's not really going to put a huge dent in the problem that we've got. If we really want to to start um, displacing a lot of the CO2, we're going to have to put in some, some big plants with known technology and start doing it fairly quickly. I think in the short term, the, the best answer to that is is uh, nuclear power. Um, you know, we were, we were the first country to develop uh, nuclear energy, built the first uh, test plant in Shippingport, Pennsylvania in the 50s. Um, we are the ones who, who built a lot of plants and then because of Three Mile Island and some other things slowed it down. And, uh, you know, other countries around the world are building these plants at a rapid pace. The, the Japanese are putting in 15, the Chinese are putting in 30, the Indians are putting in 20, the French, most of their power today comes from nuclear power and they're building more. Even the Middle East is looking at building um, nuclear power to displace um, the fact that they're burning lots of oil and gas. Yet the U.S., the nuclear renaissance is moving at a snail's pace. And I think, you know, that's the one thing you just don't see a lot of people talk about. So you see Obama's stimulus bill throwing a little bit of money at nuclear, but most of the money's being thrown at a lot of these alternative technologies and, and renewables. And those will have an impact, but they're relatively small, and most of those things are uneconomic today. You know, nuclear power is economic. It, it is safe. We have to solve the storage, the waste storage issue. And if you've seen recently what came out from the Secretary of Energy, he's basically, you know, said that we're not going to go forward with the Yucca Mountain storage thing in Nevada. So, so basically the big power companies in the, in the U.S. are sitting there. There are more than 30 applications to build new plants, uh, that have been on, been on the drawing boards for several years now, but we haven't put a shovel in the ground yet, uh, despite knowing about these issues for the last decade. So I think in terms of doing things that we can do now and move rather quickly, yes, some of this renewable stuff is good. We should do some of the wind and some of the solar and some of the biomass and some of the other things. But if you take a look at the big numbers, we're being fooled by, we're being fooled by politicians and zealots out there 
who say that this is the answer. It's not the answer. It's, it's, it's a small part of the answer. The bigger part has to come from things like nuclear power and, and perhaps even in the short term, you know, we now have a lot of natural gas in this country, uh, displacing some of the coal with natural gas, which only has about half the CO2 that coal does. So I think in terms of shifting to, um, you know, get rid of a lot of the CO2, that's the kind of big issues we ought to be talking about, but you don't see a lot of that in the, in the, in the press. But if you go talk to big corporations, the big power companies, and the big suppliers to those companies, like the GEs and the Siemens and, and those kinds of companies, they'll say, we, you know, we need to get moving with nuclear, but no one's going to spend that kind of money on those plants until we get a solution to the waste issue and until we understand what the cost of carbon is going to be. I, I, on many of those large issues, uh, we, uh, the American people, and certainly this little voice at McLaughlin at work, don't know where to turn. Uh, it's sort of the, how, how did we get into Vietnam? How did we get into Iraq? How do we get back into nuclear? Um, and in, in your role as a consultant to private industry, uh, Educate me on where this all starts. How do, how do the right people get the right... If one buys off on the nuclear, um, and certainly if looking at 60 Minutes over the last couple of weeks, I think it was last week, they had the, one of the titans of the coal industry talking about, uh, I guess, agreeing to the, the, the same thing that you are espousing, although I'm not sure that nuclear was the answer. Yeah. Um, but where does where does it start and how does it happen? I, I, I feel remarkably helpless on this issue, and I'm this, the fact that you raised the smoking issue um, here in New York or anywhere around the world, and Bloomberg and others getting together and saying no more smoking in restaurants, which people would have thought it was impossible to do. Um, where, where, as a citizen uh, sitting in Virginia, having been all over this this great country, where does it start? To, to start in, to really start initiating the game-changing options for fueling the future, as you subtitle your book. Well, I, you know, I think it has to start. I think there's two dimensions to that. One is um, it, it's got to start with with leadership and government. And you know, I think we, you know, I think the people of this country gave Obama, you know, um, strong approval to move forward with his agenda. And I think he needs to start doing that. What I've I'm a bit disappointed. What I've seen so far is that he's gotten caught up in all the political games of, uh, you know, this, you know, this new stimulus bill that's come out is kind of sprinkling, uh, relatively small chunks of money on lots and lots of things as opposed to focusing most of the money on the few big things. And, and he's gotten caught up in, in, uh, for example, stopping Yucca Mountain, um, because that was a big, you know, it's Harry Reid is, is the, uh, head of the Senate and he's, you know, he's uh, a senator from Nevada, and he doesn't want, you know, nuclear waste stored in Nevada. So that's kind of shut down. Um, so, you know, we, we need, that, that's just on the nuclear issue. On the on the coal issue, we need to be moving forward. You know, we have a very strong coal lobby in this country, and it creates lots of jobs. So, you know, what we, what we need to do is instead of keep pushing forward with conventional coal, we need to be spending a lot more money on how to clean coal and store it. But that's going to be another big issue. You know, we can't get to agreement about how to store nuclear waste, how are we going to get to agreement on how to store the CO2 from all this coal in, in the ground, and where is it going to get stored, in which states, et cetera. So it's got to start with some grassroots initiatives, I think, in the in, in individual states, and, and the corporations are certainly lobbying for a lot of this. But I think we need some real leadership in government. I think, you know, I think we need President Obama 
and, and Congress and stuff to step forward and say, look, we're not going to be able to take care of every state's needs out there. We've got to do what's right for this country and for the world. And to do that, we're going to have to make some big bets, like you said that Bloomberg did in, uh, in New York with, uh, um, you know, with smoking and stuff. But, you know, we're going to need some big steps to say, no, we're not going to worry about taking care of every constituency here. We're going to do right, what's right for the American people and globally. And, and we're going to push forward some of these things despite what some state says or, or what some locality says. And, and so far, I don't see that. So far, I see, you know, uh, him playing the games. That we've traditionally seen. So I'm not convinced that uh, this shift. So I think, you know, the people who, who still seem to be saying that, that Obama's saying the right things in all the polls, I, I'm not sure from an energy perspective he is doing the right things yet. I think he says some of the right things, but then when you see what actually happens, it, we're not making the progress. We're not moving fast enough. And, and Copenhagen um, in November is, is coming upon us very quickly, and I don't think we're going to be ready for it. The uh, the uh, and, and speak to what, what what's going to happen in Copenhagen in in, uh, in the in the fall. Copenhagen is a global climate change summit, much like Kyoto was, you know, 15 or so years ago, and uh, that's the summit at which they're hoping that the, the world's leaders, at least from the 20 largest um, nations, uh, are going to get to agreement about what to do about climate change and in terms of uh, global regulation. Uh, and, uh, and, and how to price carbon globally. Because frankly, if we don't get to a global agreement, what's going to happen is all the backsliding that you, you've, we've seen over the past 10 years, right? People aren't going to commit big dollars to things that they don't think everyone else is going to play. If the U.S. just does, just takes steps in this direction, U.S. companies are complaining they're going to be disadvantaged versus their competitors globally, so you, you have sort of a stalemate on those issues. So we need Obama to show leadership globally and get back into the climate change game. And I think Hillary Clinton made a big announcement about that we're back in the game the other day. Um, but I think we not only need to show our leadership, but we need to get the rest of the world, at least the countries that really count, who generate most of the CO2 to play as well. And, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, that's going to take a lot of work. I'm not sure we'll be there by the end of this year. So let, let me ask you what the if one buys the notion that there's an inevitability that, that we are going to both. And, and I'm assuming that global warming and energy requirements are very closely linked. Yes. If you if you were going to pick a year in time when this oil was going to fester to a point where it needed to be lanced. Select a year for us when this is going to all come to a head. I think certainly by, um, uh, by something like 2020 to 2025, in, in, the, you know, in the next uh, 10 to 15 years, uh, be, because the amount of investment that is needed to solve this problem is huge. It's you know, it's in the trillions, not billions of dollars. And in order for people to commit that much money to those kind of investments, they're going to need to see that there's global collaboration and coordination around this this challenge that's facing the Earth, the planet Earth. And right now, we're, we're nowhere near that. And so I think what we're going to see is countries continuing to do more incrementally, uh, countries and companies doing more incrementally, but no, no big steps forward um, in, in, until we get to a point where um, the uh, 
the, the next catastrophic event happens with climate change. I mean, scientists are saying, you know, I don't want to go into all the detail, but scientists are, are saying that in the next 10 to 15 years, we could see the kind of warming that will will do some very dramatic things to the you know the water levels in this country and, and to the water supply in this country. Um, you know, I heard the other day that um, if you know, you know that the Chinese, for example, are now on board with a lot of the climate change things that need to happen because they understand that if the warming continues at the pace it's it's happening, uh, sometime in the next 25 or 30 years, they could see a significant amount of their water. In China, dissipate. I mean, they get they get the majority of their water in China supplied from the, the melting of the Himalayas or the Himalayas, and, and something like half of that water supply could go away um, as, the, as the climate uh, changes and, and continues to heat up. And so the Chinese are now seeing, you know, that this is a this is a major issue. We need to start doing something. We need more. Of the, I think it's going to take, to your point earlier, it's going to take some crises to get people to start to realize that this this is really coming at us and that the energy, you know, that we need to be using our energy more wisely um, and it's going to require lots of investment. I mean, the, the kinds of money we're talking about for things like fixing the, the grid, the smart grid, things you hear about, um, building these uh, these nuclear plants, investing in technology around batteries, uh, the, the battery technology so that we can uh, improve solar store solar and wind power and and so that we can run electric cars more efficiently and stuff that's going to take you know trillions of dollars of investment and take a look at the state of our auto industry do you think the auto industry can afford to make those kind of bets right now no do you think power companies they're all hurting take a look at the stock prices of major power companies they're hurting right now they can't afford to make those kind of investments um so yeah the government's throwing a little bit of money at it but but Frankly, we're we're throwing it in little pieces around. It's not going to make that kind of impact. We're going to have to get to some kind of global agreement about what to do on this, and then focus our investments around around this energy shift. Um, speaking with uh, Eric Spiegel of Blues and Company, the book Energy Shift: Game Changing Options for Fueling the Future. As we uh, as we come to a close here, Eric, uh, is there Anything that you see on the horizon of a breakthrough in the matters of the mundane, a better battery. We've been talking about this for a very long time, and there's been no uh, appreciable adjustment or, or breakthrough. And secondly, on the broader scale, do you see anything in the skunk works, in the back rooms, in the black rooms, uh, that gives any hope that there's either cold fusion energy or that there's going to be another source or whether oceans can provide or thermal from the base of the earth is there is there, do you see any hope on battery a and and energy b what are the chances that we'll have some huge breakthrough that will all render this conversation null and void yeah um a couple of points. One is on the battery issue. I, I do see progress. Um, battery, the, the improvement in batteries um, has been um, uh, going at a pretty constant rate. I mean, I think the the efficiency of batteries, battery technology has improved, basically doubled about every seven or eight years. Uh, not as fast, but similar to to the kind of Moore's law that we see around uh, chip capacity and chip. Um, uh, effectiveness that we've seen, you know, with computer technology, 
over the over the past uh, two or three decades. So I, I think we are seeing an increase, and I think if you take a look at where that's headed, I think sometime in the 2020 to 2030 time frame, uh, solar power is going to be um, grid compatible with with uh, things like um, coal and nuclear and gas that's out there generating electricity today. Um, so I, I think solar at some point in that time frame, solar is going to become uh, you know compatible on a on a grid level scale if they keep investing the money in the battery technology, and that's that's the one thing that I wish we would be putting more money on. It's also going to allow us to shift from the internal combustion engine to the electric car. A lot of people talk about that as a great thing, but if we if we don't align that shift with the shift in in power generation away from carbon. It's not going to do us much good to be using more electricity. But I do see the battery thing coming along. In, ter- in terms of other things that I see, I think, you know, if, you, if, if we were sitting 50 years from now looking back at, at, at Earth, I think you would see that the vast majority of power, of energy in this world is coming from the sun or geothermal, uh, probably a little bit of hydro. I think most of these technologies in 50 years won't be needed. I think, you know, the, you know, the sun is a pretty powerful... Uh, energy producer, I think we're going to find ways to harness the sun. Uh, it's going to take you know money and time, but I think looking back in 2050 or 2060, um, you're going to see that as the as prominent. And, and there are lots of new ideas around that. There's also things like using wave technology and other things. I think those could play a role, but um, the sun, I think, the, the solar long, long term, if we can get the technology there, is is where the big bet is. That, however, is not going to help us between now and 2025 or whatever. I mean, there's things we need to do before that interim solutions um, around using some of these renewables and nuclear and some other things to get us from here to there. We, we definitely need to shift away from the internal combustion engine. And I think the electric car, talk about innovation, I think the electric cars have come a long way. You have companies like Tesla and Tata, and even the major auto companies are starting to push electric cars. I think that that shift... To the electric car over the next, you know, 15 or 20 years can have a huge impact. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the auto companies don't have the money to spend <laughs> as much money as we'd like to be able to spend on that. So again, I'd like to see more of the government pushing instead of instead of bailout money being spent on the old the old auto industry that we that we know. Let's shift that money to the new technologies, you know, hybrids and electric cars, and and maybe even in some cases uh, hydrogen. Um, for things like fleets, um, that's where we ought to be spending the money. Let's let's leapfrog the old technology. And I think the Chinese, if you take a look at what the Chinese are doing, they're actually putting in place a lot of these newer technologies and skipping over a lot of the older technology. I think you'll see the innovation and the development of electric cars in India and China much faster than you will see it. Well, you, you will see it here. So I think there is hope. I think we just need to get focused on the big issues and make sure we're putting putting our dollars to work in the best places and not just, you know, sort of trying to feed every political agenda out there, uh, in, as, as I've seen us doing in the U.S. and globally, a uh, similar issue. Eric uh, Spiegel, managing uh, senior ma- senior partner with uh, Booze & Company. Uh, the book is um, Energy Shift, Game-Changing Options for Fueling the Future. It's certainly relevant to the dialogue that's taking place very locally and very much around the world, and um, we hope that people like yourself have uh, a place at the table, the voices be heard, because uh, we are, in a, in a very real sense, 
we're all in this together. Thank you, Paul. I've enjoyed it. Eric Spiegel, thank you very much for being with me. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace, and uh, grateful for Eric's time here today. And we look forward to seeing the impact and the results of your book. And thank you, Eric. Enjoy listening to Eric. Enjoy speaking with him. Paul McLaughlin here, McLaughlin at Work. Going to shift gears. Moving on to another booze and company executive consultant who has written a book, Les Moeller, The Four Pillars of Profit-Driven Marketing. Don't forget, gentle listener, if uh, speaking of profit-driven marketing, if you have web-based learning needs, particularly if they dovetail with certification training, uh, we encourage you to be in touch with Classroom 24-7. And now, without further ado, we move on to our talk with Les Moeller, the four pillars of profit-driven marketing. Folks at Booze and Company are an educated intellectual lot. They know what they're talking about and they express themselves well. So we like having them on the show, particularly if they've written good books. Les has. Here he comes. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace. The Work Wonk, bringing you the best of management, leadership, and employment in the workplace. This afternoon, speaking with Leslie Moeller, the author of, with his co-author Edward Landry, The Four Pillars of Profit-Driven Marketing. I notice that profit-driven is larger than the marketing words. How to maximize creativity, accountability, and ROI. And I just hope that all of our audience, and I would assume they would, would not think that ROI was a French name for something. At least they appreciate what that's all about. Um, Les, thanks very much for being with me this afternoon. Tell us, first of all, what are the four pillars and how do they differ? I, I know they go back a little bit in history, but how do they differ from the fifth pillar, which is really the focus of this book? Yeah, so the four pillars, well, let's start with the fifth pillar. The fifth pillar is profit. So, you know, I think um, if you think about to Kotler and the four Ps, we said there should be a fifth P, which is profit, which is probably the reason you undertake any any business uh, activity. And what we have said is for marketing, but really almost for any uh, kind of capability, there's four kinds of things that you need to do. One, you need to have a knowledge or an analytical understanding of um, the impacts of the set of things that you do, uh, and this can be, you know, quite simple to, you know, quite complicated sort of uh, econometric models that predict the impacts of various marketing vehicles. That's the science, not the art. Exactly. Uh, and then the next thing is you need to have a, a tool that makes the scientific models uh, available to people in the front line so they don't have to clock through all these equations every day, right? It makes it as readily accessible. Then you need a set of processes that ask people to use the tools at the right time in the right place. And then you need to have the organization aligned so there's a good reason for them to use the tools and increase profitability so they actually care about it and, by the way, have the skill sets and support necessary to, do, uh, to be successful in using the tools. And those are the analytics parts. Where, where did this book come from? Why, why did you and your colleagues 
at Booz uh, and company. Why did you think this was necessary and particularly important now? Well, I think at one level, you know, I have been doing this kind of work for 17 years and made my living at it. So I think like uh, any professional, you know, uh, we had a theory uh, which had generated a fair amount of good results for our clients. And, you know, getting it down in one place uh, in its entirety was sort of a personal aspiration. You know, I think in today's market, uh, as any any marketer knows, you know, the marketing budget is under pressure. So being able to prove that what you're doing actually has a benefit uh, and, you know, generates uh, sales uh, for your company is a, a, you know, is a good thing. And then lastly, I I would say just as a professional, a marketing professional, I've always found it sort of um, disconcerting when people say you can't measure marketing. Now, I don't think it's easy, and I think you've got to apply some judgment on what you do with the measurement once you've got it, but it can be measured, and you can take responsibility for you know, making your companies more profit and profitable and generating volume, uh, or profitable volume, the best of both worlds. Yep. And I think you know, marketers ought to step up to that challenge you know, and get it done. Um, for most books that are written around this period, um, or come out around this period, they were written before the debacle of 2008. Does this book, is it more relevant, less relevant today than it was when you wrote it? Well, you know, in some ways I would argue it's eternally relevant because there's always this uh, tension with marketers on wanting to be creative and, you know, uh, push the envelope. Uh, and in some ways they might feel that is, uh, not does not align with being held accountable for results, right? Now, I, one of the things we point out in the market is that you know, being able to measure results in many ways allows you to be more creative because if you can show your creative uh, ad or, you know, your creative marketing campaign or your creative positioning works and generates revenue, then you're more likely to get your, uh, you know, your corporate uh, parent or your CEO to let you do those creative things. So I think it's always been a tension, an issue that marketers face. I do think today where every piece of the P&L is under scrutiny and people are paying special attention to it, it's even more relevant. And, you know, I think we see that in our business today. We're getting plenty of inquiries from people around, from CEOs who say, I'm spending all this money in marketing. Can you please tell me whether or not this was a good or a bad idea? And should I keep doing it? To marketing managers saying, well, you know, profit's tight. They're cutting my budget. I'm not sure if this makes sense. Can you help me make my case? One of the things we talk about at the book, you know, the gold standard of marketing ROI is to have a stream of consumer behavioral data, whether that's purchases at the checkout counter or purchases off your website, um, and to be able to match that up with your marketing activities to determine whether or not uh, those actually generated incremental volume. And then in the book, you know, there's a very simple marketing ROI equation, which basically says, you know, how much profit do I get relative to the cost of the marketing activity uh, that calculates, you know, that I make money or lose money by doing this. And I think we say uh, two things in the book. One, doing this activity is, a little, is very doable. People claim quite often it's hard or we don't have the data, a whole host of things like that. I think it's really our experience that companies have tons of data. In fact, they're drowning in it. The real issue is to organize it, uh, crunch it, and make it relevant and accessible. That being said, for places where it's hard or if you have a you know just a very 
elongated distribution chain that makes it hard for you to see this stuff all the time. There are other simpler tools you can use from, you know, simple break-even analysis, which, you know, I did in the 1980s at P&G, to, you know, some intermediate stuff around, you know, awareness and purchase consideration. And then if you track, you know, even those attitudinal measures over time, you can determine what the impact of your marketing campaign is. I think that so the output metric, which you know the best case is hard quantitative marketing ROI, and the worst case is boy, I have to believe this ad is going to double my sales to to be effective. Do I think it's doing that? You know, I think it's a very doable proposition. I think you have to combine that up against the creative piece of the process. And so I don't think the book spends a lot of time talking about how to generate good consumer insight. There's a lot of stuff happening in the world around that. Sure. But what it does say is, you know, the beauty to creativity is that if you have a measure, then you can test it. And then if you do that, that that will support creativity. And so in some ways, I think this uh, dichotomy that marketers like to uh, put up, which is, you know, um, making me accountable does not make me creative, I think is actually the exact opposite is true. Being accountable and having measures allow you to be allow you to be more creative. So what I would say is, you know, the web is a new marketing vehicle. And so the uh, the good and bad news for marketers is just that. So all of the tricks of the trade that they learned before, you know, have to be translated to a new medium. doesn't mean you don't want to have a consistent message, but it does mean it needs to be more customized to your customer audience. It needs to be more involving with them. Uh, this creates a whole host of new creative ways to interact with consumers. I'll say it, somewhat, you have to be a little bit of a legacy thinker. Uh, how did you adapt? Well, what, 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 what gave you the special gift to be able to translate these generational shifts? Well, I think that uh, to go out of the ROI topic, I think all marketers have to have uh, customer empathy. So I think the only, the only solution to that is to, you know, have your own networking site, surf the web with your daughter, buy books over the web, uh, play WoW, right? I mean, there's a whole host of activities that if you want to be a marketer today that you probably ought to engage in so you have real sort of firsthand experience with what that's like. Do you, tw- awesome. do you Twitter? Uh, don't do that yet. Okay. So I will, I'll fess up to that that's one. That's good. Well, that you passed the first litmus test of honesty, <laughs> which is important. I, but it's a very interesting because it seems to be evolving so quickly, all of these. That I, 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 I'm curious how somebody who obviously is as well grounded as you are, it's, I, I guess it's been one of my thoughts here at McLaughlin to work, and I should remind people that I'm speaking to Leslie Moeller, the author of Four Pillars of Profit Driven Marketing, and we obviously will move around that subject because we try and keep it, uh, keep it interesting. And one of the things here at McLaughlin at work, as we espouse what is going to happen as we come out of the morass caused in 08, and we're still drifting with the tail, although things appear to be better today than they were six months ago, is whether people who were in the problem, part of the problem, if you will, part of the debacle of last year, whether they're going to be able to change and come out of it. And certainly one of the ways that Twitter has sort of come of age in the last few months um, what is your what is the ROI when you're talking about shifting gears to truly social networking? How how do the metrics capture that, or how do you interpret what's happening, which which is obviously happening? How how is somebody in your position approaching 
how to deal with those metrics? Well, interestingly enough, there's a whole host of uh, data available for what consumers' uh, Internet behavior is, right? Um, you know, through, through a set of providers, right? Yep. And you can uh, take that web activity stream and match it up against uh, visits to your sites, visits to sales, and actually correlate that stuff quite tightly. So, in fact, it's actually, in some ways, it's sort of easy to take web activity and um, match it to sales. The thing that I think is a bigger challenge is it is a little bit harder to determine whether or not you're going to have a hit, right, that will generate a lot of activity than it is I'm going to run a 30-second commercial and hit so many eyeballs. Now, there was always the question of whether that, that commercial would be impactful, right? So there was always a risk execution to execution about whether or not it would work. All I would say is that sort of execution risk, you know, can I make a, you know, can I run a contest that produces compelling videos that people will share with each other? You know, can I have the right kind of social engagement with people that makes them want to pass it on to their friends? In some ways, the executional risk is harder against that. That being said, the tracking data is there for you to tell when you've got something right you know, how it is, what it is that it's working and that you might want to spend more money and more, or more effort spinning it up. I'd also just say as an aside, um, you know, I work with a lot of traditional, let's say, call them Fortune 100 companies. And, you know, by and large, you know, I think you're onto a good topic because marketers in this space are not really thinking ahead enough around this. And the one thing that I think the, um, one would hope the recession would do would be to force marketers to make some hard choices about supporting a set of things that, you know, really work. Um, it turns out that I think in some cases they're going back to traditional media because that's what they know and, what, and that's what makes them safe. I will say with the clients with which I'm currently engaged, you know, where we can show them the impact of their Internet campaigns or their, you know, social media marketing, they're spending more money there because we can show them that that works. Here we are in New York and we hear these things said, even though we don't know, understand them, <clears throat> that if you put $15 million into a digital campaign, whatever that means, versus traditional medium, you will have a much higher return on that investment. Um, is, is, and, and yet, conversely, I've heard that things like, um, you know, there's no money in the web yet. Uh, when you look at television, look at all the money that's being made, if you will, by the network. Some of these cable stations don't don't make it the same way. How does that apply to your customer base? Well, what I would say is it, if you can get at the math and understand it, while people may be more happy, uh, more comfortable with traditional media, on the margin, so, so for the next million dollars you're going to spend, it's almost always the case that a good social networking campaign will, will help you out. The problem is there's that big degree of executional variance around right. that, and so you so you have to take sort of a risk to do that. So you know, getting yourself there the right way, I think, is sort of hard. But the other thing that's happening, you know, is not just the um, advertiser side of this equation. There's a consumer side of the equation. So you know, if you were if you used to rely on two newspaper advertising to reach your target audience, that's going to be harder to do because the internet's replacing it, right? Yep. And people people realize that. So I believe that one of the things that this recession will do is it's going to hasten the pace of change. Interestingly enough, it may not hasten it as much from the advertiser side as it may be from the media company and consumer side. Is the agency model in terms of profit-driven marketing um, an acronym today? Well, there's two ways to think about that. If you take profit-driven marketing against the traditional media vehicles, I think advertising agencies would be are quite comfortable. 
some of you even have businesses that support uh, that kind of work. And I think, um, you know, there's always a lot of talk about compensating agencies for results. You know, I don't think you see it very often, but, you know, you can imagine that that would be sort of easier to do in a system that works this way, right? Certainly it would be easier for you to determine whether or not the agency had done a good job. Right. That's if, a good if, thing. If you could measure it, you could reward. Right, exactly. Or at least, and if it wasn't in hard cash, at least, you know, when you did your annual review, you would know how happy or sad to be. Right, and you'd give them more business, presumably. Exactly. Which is as much as paying them more. On the other hand, I think, um, and we did some research with the ANA that said this, you know, if you ask uh, manufacturers slash advertisers how they feel about the agency's ability to offer them a solution in non-traditional media, they would say they just can't do it. And even when agencies go out and buy these companies that do to provide non-traditional work, media, they're like separate companies and they might as well not even be related to each other. Uh, Les Moeller, why is that true? I, I just don't think the agencies have thought enough about how to pull the stuff together and to make it a real team and a real sort of non-zero-sum game across their enterprises. And I don't know that they've been threatened enough in their business yet to see that happen. But if, as we talked about the media shift that's occurring, you know, as that occurs, they're going to, you know, they need to get with it or they're going to face a big change, I think. Is Madison Avenue literally less of a factor? You know, what I think they're, they are on the verge. Well, on the verge of being less of a factor. So I think they're still a big factor. I think they're still important. The, uh, the value of big ideas is great. The value of an integrated campaign is great. They've just lost the ability to really drive an integrated campaign for their clients. And all I suggest is they should get with it or they will be irrelevant. So I don't think they're irrelevant yet. But I, I think that the clock is ticking. I, I think that the biggest thing that would happen is if they understood whether what of their sales or marketing activities really generated revenue. They'd have a better idea for how their business model needs to change in the future. I see that uh, Ken Roman, who is the former chairman of Ogilvy and Mather, has given you a supporting statement for the book, a compelling case that results can, in parens and must, be measured. Who should buy this book and who would, other than the people who would buy it, who will benefit from it most? Well, I, I think the uh, the target audience is quite wide for CEOs and CFOs who want to look who look at that marketing line and say, "Well, I don't know what I get for that. Is that really money well spent?" And after that, they've had that conversation. They've read the book, had the conversation. Presumably, they can call on Les Moller, a partner at Booz and Company, to uh, to uh, deliver the fine points. Exactly, but I would just be happy if they uh, got one or two good ideas out of it and moved their business ahead. And you can ask much more than that of a book. The Four Pillars of Profit-Driven Marketing. Get a couple of pointers out of it and move your business, move your life ahead. Paul McLaughlin, The Work Walk, your audio guide to the workplace. Here, bringing you the best of management, leadership, and employment. All those things that are engaged in the workplace. And a, a workplace that is ever-evolving, shifting sands hold no stability. And we see that on an ongoing daily, weekly, monthly evolutionary process. Uh, Is it heading in the right direction? Well, with the will of the people, the desire to do business, the natural inclination to do what one perceives to be right, and in this case, profitable, In the case of Eric Spiegel's treatise on energy shifts, 
we have to take into account the larger issues of our society and our economy. And sometimes we have to make choices, difficult ones, between what is best for the business, what is best for the economy, and what is best for the society in which we live. We try and balance those. We try and bring you different points of view. We bring you experts in their field. And we do that here on a regular basis. McLaughlin at work. Paul McLaughlin, The Work Walk, your audio guide to this very exciting, never dull workplace in which we all labor because we like to or because we have to or because uh, that's why we're here. Thanks for joining me. Look forward to having you again next time listening to Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work. Later.